well, welcome to week 13 of this equipping class on systematic theology, part two. So uh, today we are continuing on the topic of eschatology that we started last week. And if you're wondering what this thing is, it's, it's uh, I had a, a hole in my coffee cup. Defective coffee cup, so this is the, the patch that I came up with. But it's so top-heavy, I don't think I can sit it down or it may topple over. So I'm just going to hold it. Um, okay, so eschatology. We're, we're continuing with eschatology this week. So to start, um, well, and uh, let me just say just kind of a little housekeeping item, which is this is the, this is the final week of the final topic of systematic theology and so next week will be actually the last week that we meet and that's going to be a review of all of systematic theology too so if you haven't been here for some or all of that then next week will be really helpful to kind of tie up the whole class um, so and it'll be time where you can ask some questions as well although it's not going to be a it's not going to be like a full Q&A session, so feel free to ask, you know, as we said a while back, ask your questions as we go, but there will be time for some questions. Right, Connor? Yeah. Okay. Some, not a lot of questions. That's right. Right. Okay. Okay. So, um, so as to start today, I just want to circle back to something that we discussed last week. And that is that eschatology really matters for how we live today. Okay? So sometimes for many of us it can be a little bit scary when we come to prophetic parts of Scripture, especially when we try to read or study the book of Revelation in particular. Uh, but let me read to you from the introduction of the book of Revelation. And this is Revelation 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So God has promised blessing to those who endeavor to know more about him through his word. So... Be encouraged by that promise as we consider these things together. Okay, let me open us in prayer and we'll, we'll get started. <clears throat> oh, Lord, we are so thankful uh, for your word and for all that you've revealed to us about yourself in it, uh, things about the past, things about the present, and uh, importantly in this topic, things about the future. And, uh, Lord, we want to be those who hear it, who take to heart what is written in it. Um, and so we pray that you would, your spirit would assist us in that this morning as we consider these things, that, um, that we would think about these things humbly, um, uh, but also with excitement and with expectation and with hope and with joy about what you have told us um, about your plan for us with you in the future, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. amen. Okay, so let's start with, um, if you look on your outline, we're going to start with just, just a brief review, no, oh, I'm good, thank you, um, a brief review of what we covered last week. So we started last week by asking four basic questions about eschatology. Right, so the first question we ask is, what is eschatology? So what is eschatology? End times. Yeah, so it's the study of last things. So we're studying last things when we talk about eschatology. And then we ask the question, why is it important to study? Why is it important to study eschatology? What were some of the things that we talked about that would be important reasons for studying eschatology? Well, if you were going to study the last thing, you might want to be considering where you're ending up. Yeah, gives us 
gives us hope and, and understanding of what our future is. Yeah. What else? Well, on the flip side of that is it, it helps you to understand why it's so important to reach out to our non-Christian friends. Yeah. Gives you an urgency. Yeah. yeah. An urgency to share the gospel. An urgency to live with expectant hope. Yeah, absolutely. What else? Yes, right. So we talked about 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed, right? And it's profitable. So, and we talked about the fact that the Bible just has a lot to say about the future. That as much as 25% of the Bible talks about things that still haven't happened yet. So, so given that there's that much information, um, about the future in scripture well that tells us that it's important to god and so if the future is important to god then it should be important to us as well yeah and one other thing that we said is just that fulfilled prophecy just shows god's faithfulness right it it reminds us of god's faithfulness because just like everything that he promised in the old testament about the first coming of christ just the way that all came to pass exactly the way he said it would, we can have confidence that everything that he said about the second coming of Christ is likewise going to come to pass just the way that he said it would. So, so we can have great hope and great confidence in that. And then we ask, the next question that we ask is, what are the different views? So what different views of eschatology did we discuss? last week the overall systems of covenant theology and dispensational theology right so we had two broad systems that we talked about covenant theology dispensationalism and what was what was kind of the distinction between those two systems do you remember there's really kind of there's one thing that is kind of the hinge that that turns each of those systems you remember what that is? Dispensationalism would be Israel. Well, yes, um, but even more kind of fundamental than that. Like, what what is going to lead dispensationalists to their view on Israel and the church? Hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, exactly. Hermeneutics. So it's it's their method of interpretation uh, is what hermeneutics is referring to. So. So each of these different systems has a slightly different approach to interpreting Scripture. And so that different approach is going to lead them to different views of the future of eschatology. So, and, and, and what we said was, when you think about dispensationalism, think about discontinuity. And when you think about covenant theology, think about continuity. And so thinking about those two kind of poles of continuity and discontinuity is how we can kind of start to think about the differences between how covenant theologians think and dispensationalists think. And so then we also looked at within that, there's really kind of very nuanced views all along there. So we looked at it as more of a, uh, more of a continuum or more of a spectrum than just this very oversimplified dichotomy between covenant theology and dispensationalism, right? So remember we had the, the there was a chart that just kind of showed that there are nuances within each of these views so that you have kind of a sliding scale of where people are going to land on this. So we didn't we weren't attempting to get deep into any of those, but to just kind of make you aware. Okay. So then with that, with all the information on the different views, what then did we say, what aspects of eschatology are essential to our faith? You remember? Well, yeah, right. I mean, you can always cheat, Frank. 
John O. Christ is returning, judgment is coming, new heaven and a new earth. Yeah, exactly. So those are the essentials. Those are the things that all Bible-believing Christians agree on. Those are the things that we must believe about the future. And so those are the things that we really want to focus on in this class, and that has kind of become our outline. So, and we covered the first point in that outline last week, which was the second coming of Christ. And so what did we, this is not on the handout, what did we note about the second coming of Christ? What are some characteristics of, of Christ's second coming that we see from Scripture? Anybody remember? He's coming physically? Yes. Yeah, he's, it's, a, it's a personal, visible, bodily return. Yeah. So he is, he is coming physically back to earth. He's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives. It's not the spirit of Christ that's returning in the hearts of his people that's going to usher in a, a utopian society. That's not what's happening. He's actually physically, visibly coming back. What else did we note about the second coming? That's right. The timing is unknown. Timing is unknown. So, despite what a lot of people say. Right. Despite what all, yeah, all the different prophecy ministries will tell you who try to take every headline and every world event and attach it to, you know, uh, prophecy. We don't know. Uh, Jesus, the son, when he was on earth, did not know the timing. Therefore, we don't either. Um, and so because we don't know, how should we live? How should we live in response to that? Mm. Exactly. Christ wants us to live as though he could come at any moment. And could he come at any moment? Could he actually come at any moment? In spite of the fact that there are signs, the Bible seems to be clear about the fact that there are signs that must precede his coming. Yeah. So we talked about that. So, so yes, I mean, there, there is some mystery there. There is some tension between living as though Christ could come back at any moment because he seems to indicate that he could, and then also knowing these signs that need to the, that need to precede his coming. So we don't we can't fully understand how all that's going to work itself out. We talked about a couple of ways that people have tried to reconcile that, but ultimately nobody knows. Um, okay, so that brings us then today to the second of the essential beliefs about the future, which is the final judgment. Judgment is coming. We know that. That is certain. So, we talked about the second coming last week, and what we're talking about today is that when Jesus comes back, he will come as Lord and judge of the universe. So, and that is not some far-off notion. It is our present, urgent reality, and we must be prepared for judgment. <clears throat> the book of Ecclesiastes talks about considering the purpose of life. So the book of Ecclesiastes, he's, he's, he's pondering, what's the meaning, what's the purpose of life? And uh, the preacher, as he's called, after he considers all of life and the actual meaning of life, he ends his search for meaning with this conclusion in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. He says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. 
So those are sobering words, I think, for us this morning as we think about the final judgment. And so that's point two there on your handout. So this is the judgment in which all people are either condemned or rewarded for eternity. Okay? So if we look, if we look at Scripture on this, again, I mean, we're not going to look into exactly on the eschatological timetable. This is all going to happen. But the basic message of Scripture is that there's going to be one judgment and that it is coming soon. So, in his speech to the Athenians, Paul says, God, uh, this is in Acts 17, God commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So, One theologian says it this way, we are saved by grace, but will be judged by works. There are many other New Testament passages on the judgment of believers according to their works. So sometimes we think about judgment as being specifically for unbelievers, but there's many places in the New Testament that makes it clear that believers will be judged according to their works as well. And it never says exactly what this judgment will be. Um, And we know, of course, that we've been forgiven for our sins, um, but that we will be and will be rewarded for our service to God. So our sins are forgiven. There will be reward in heaven for us for the things that we have done. Um, But it would suffice to say that we will be faced with our evil deeds and then forgiven and will be rewarded for the good we have done. So we're going to face the bad things that we've done. We're going to give an account for those in some way. Um, And we'll actually be rewarded for ways that we've been faithful and ways that we've been obedient. Um, In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So there's a sense in which Essentially, there's going to be a a fire test for everything that we've done. If it survives the fire, then it's worthy of reward. If it burns up in the fire, then it was pretty much worthless. And if if we could keep that in mind as we're going about our daily lives, it would be such a helpful perspective to have. To think about, okay... Is this thing that I'm devoting so much time and energy and effort to, is it going to survive the fire? Or is it not? Is it going to burn up? And if so, should I really be dedicating this much time and effort and energy to it? So, judgment is coming. So, let's talk about what Scripture says about it. So let's talk about three biblical statements about the final judgment. And the first is is that Jesus Christ will be the judge. Jesus Christ will be the judge. So in the New Testament, we see that God is the judge. 
We see that in Matthew 6, Matthew 18, Romans 14. And we see that Christ himself is the judge as well. Matthew 7, Matthew 25, 2 Corinthians 5. So Jesus himself will be the judge at the time of the final judgment. He is the one appointed by the Father. And one day our acceptance or denial of Jesus here on earth will be brought to bear its full weight as we come under his judgment. And it's Jesus, the one whom we have followed or opposed, who will judge us. So, again, sobering, uh, sobering words and reality to consider. Number two, <coughs> perhaps more sobering, is that unbelievers will be content, condemned to eternal punishment. So, it's at this time of the final judgment that unbelievers will be condemned before the Lord. So Paul says in Romans 2, God will give to each man according to what he has done. That's Romans 2, 6. And then down in verse 8, he says, For those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil there, there will be wrath and anger. So those who do not believe in Christ will be condemned because they have not turned from their sin and repented. They have not accepted the teaching of Jesus. And because of that, they will receive the punishment of hell. So the Bible's very clear on this. Hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. Um, the Bible refers to hell often as a place where men will weep and there will be gnashing of teeth. It's a place where the fire never goes out and where there will be no rest. So it is a real place and it is the real result of God's wrath and judgment against sin. And uh, there is a, a trend in recent years in, um, among evangelicals to reject the doctrine of eternal punishment and advocate a view called annihilationism, which means that unbelievers are finally destroyed and no longer exist. Okay, so annihilationists would say, hell is not eternal, that it's temporary. That they would say it's real and that it's terrible, but that it's temporary. And that ultimately, those who go to hell are going to just die and cease to exist. Um, but the Bible does not support this view. So in Matthew 25, 46, Jesus said, then the wicked will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So our souls go on forever, either in eternal conscious punishment or to eternal life. Hey, Sam. Yes. Yeah. It modifies both life and, and punishment. Yeah. So if you deny eternal punishment, then by logical conclusion, you probably have to do the same with eternal life. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <clears throat> so it's difficult um, to think about people that we know being in perpetual suffering forever. I mean, that's a really just... Uh, gut-wrenching thought to get your mind around. Um, but we can't, we can't force our own skewed 
notions of justice on God's view of justice. Um, we can't impose our views of fairness on God's holiness and his righteousness. Um, he's an infinitely holy and eternal God. And so to make an offense against him is to be dealt with with eternal punishment. Um, and the only way that anyone can avoid this fury and this wrath against sin is through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ who endured that wrath on the cross for those who believe in him. And so the only difference between heaven and hell is just God's grace in Christ. That's it. Um, any thoughts, questions on that before we move on to the next one? Um, yeah, really, really heavy, really sobering reality to, to confront and to think about. Um, so our last, this third statement about the final judgment is that believers are judged according to their works. So we talked about this a little bit already, but what do you think? How can believers be judged when Christ has already paid for their sins? What do you guys think? Will they be judged? You already said earlier, and I think it's true, that our ultimate judgment is whether or not we've received Christ or not. Mm -hmm. Because if we have received Christ, all of our sin, past, present, and future, is, is under him at the cross. Yeah. And so our eternal destiny is already taken care of because Praise God. The other side of it is, is what have we done since we've been a Christian? Mm -hmm. And now in the case of the thief on the cross, he didn't really have a whole lot of chance to do anything other than make the grand confession. Yeah. And then that was it. So as far as what he did is in the way of works, very little. But if somebody's lived 60 or 70 or 50 or 40 years as a Christian, well, then they have an opportunity to, you know, they'll, they'll you know, how have they done? Yeah, so yeah, so as Frank is saying, I mean, we're, the hope that we have, the security that we have, the confidence that we have is that Christ has paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future, and praise God, he has. And so our eternal destiny is secure because of that. And so we will not finally, ultimately be condemned, um, and yet... The Bible does talk about that there's a sense in which we will be judged by how we lived as Christians. Um, so scripture seems to indicate that there's going to be varying degrees of reward depending on how we've lived and that we'll be judged for the works that we've done. So Brad preached on uh, one of these passages last week, 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So, and this is not meant to fill us with fear, um, but it's meant to inspire and spur us on to godly living. 
Because as he says there in verse 9b, we make it our aim to please him. And so because it's our aim to please him, we want to live with the knowledge and with the accountability of knowing that we are going to give an account for how we've lived as a Christian, for the words that we've spoken, for the thoughts that we've allowed to creep into our mind, for the way that we've treated others. We are going to give an account for all those things. So Luther famously said, I have two days on my calendar, today and that day. Those are the days that matter. What I do today and what happens that day. Because we're going to be judged on what we have done with what we have been given. We're going to give an account for how we've lived, and God is going to bring everything into the light that now is hidden. It's all going to be exposed. It's all going to be laid bare on that day. Um, and, and this judgment is one of the reasons why God's grace should never be taken as a license to sin. You know, Paul says that in Romans 6. May it never be that God's grace would give me a license to just live however I want. It's the opposite. Instead, we make it our aim to please him. And we live knowing that we are going to stand before him and give an account. And even though nothing that we do is going to send us to hell, if we're in Christ, we are going to have to face him. And we are going to have to explain it. And we are going to have to have those things laid out in front of us. John 5, 28 says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And then again, Romans 2. God will render to every man according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality he will give eternal life. But for those who are factious and do not obey the truth, but obey wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. So, um, our eternal life, we, we will be judged according to our works. But this doesn't mean that our eternal life is earned by our works. So we want to be really clear about that. Romans 6.23, the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So eternal life is not earned, it is free. But eternal life is rendered to us according to our works. Which is not just in Romans 2, but it's also in 1 Corinthians 6. It's in Galatians 5, it's in Ephesians 5, it's in James 2, it's in Hebrews 12, Matthew 7, Luke 10 many other places that teach the necessity of obedience in the life of faith and in the inheritance of eternal life. So here's a quote from John Piper, kind of making this distinction. He says, So we must learn to make the biblical distinction between earning eternal life on the basis of works, which the Bible does not teach, and receiving eternal life according to works, which the Bible does teach. Believers in Christ will stand before the judgment seat of God and will be accepted into eternal life on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus. But our free acceptance by grace through faith will be according to works. So, according to works means that God will take the fruit of the Spirit... And the good deeds by which we let the light of our faith shine, and he will accept them as corroborating evidence of our faith in Jesus. So the place of our works at the judgment is to serve as evidence that we did indeed put our trust in Christ. So... There will be an accord or an agreement between our salvation and the works that we did. So, again, 
just tying this up. Our deeds are not the basis of our salvation. They are the evidence of our salvation. They are not the foundation. They are the demonstration. They are, not the, they are the fruit, not the root of our salvation. Make sense? Any questions on that? So that brings us to our final essential aspect of eschatology, which is the hope of dwelling in the presence of God in a new heaven and a new earth. So after the final judgment, believers will enter into the full enjoyment of life in the presence of God forever. Jesus will say to us, come O blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And we will enter that kingdom where there will be no more uh, anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall worship him. So, three different aspects of the new heaven and the new earth that we'll talk about here. And the first is that we will live eternally with God there. We will live eternally with God there. So when referring to um, this place, Christians often talk about living with God in heaven forever. But the biblical teaching is actually richer than that because it tells us that there will be a new heavens and a new earth, an entirely renewed creation, and we will live there with God. So Revelation 21, 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So realize this morning that if you're a Christian, this is your destiny. And this is the consummation of all of redemptive history. And if you are in Christ, you get to be part of this, and you are on the right side of this judgment and on the right side of this new heaven and new earth. And I think it's worth saying that heaven is an actual place. Okay? And the new heaven and the new earth is an actual place. It's not merely a state of mind or a symbol. It's real, and if you're a Christian, you will be there bodily for eternity once you have been glorified. Okay, and so even though heaven is mentioned a lot in Scripture, there's actually not a lot of detail surrounding what exactly it will be. So to find out what heaven's like, you have to read Heaven is for Real, or what are the other books you talked about, Connor? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Better books are the one by Randy Alcorn on heaven. Yeah, Randy Alcorn does have a good book on heaven. Yeah, I mean, but that, obviously that's a joke about the books. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, the fact remains, there's not a lot of detail about what heaven is going to be like, the new heaven and the new earth. Um, because ultimately our great hope is not in the streets of gold or in the foundations of precious jewels, but our great hope is dwelling in the presence of God in his glory forever. So we will see the face of the eternal and invisible God and live in an endless succession of time, worshiping and enjoying our creator as he was meant to be. I mean, we can get excited about that this morning. So that leads us to our next point on the new heaven and the new earth, is that it is a place of abundance and joy. It's a place of abundance and joy. So these truths and these images about the future should kindle 
joy and hope within our hearts. So in Revelation 21, you've got a lot of uh, kind of details about just the kind of place that it will be. It's a holy city, a place prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. In that place, death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. There we can drink from the fountain of the water of life without payment. It is a city that has the glory of God, its radiance as a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It will be free from all evil, for nothing unclean shall enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. But more important than all the physical beauty of the heavenly city, more important than the fellowship that we will enjoy with God's people from all nations and periods in history, more important than our freedom from pain and sorrow and physical suffering, and more important than reigning over God's kingdom, more important by far than any of these will be the fact that we will be in the presence of God and enjoying unhindered fellowship with him. So when we finally see the Lord face to face, our hearts will want nothing else. And then with joy in our hearts, our voices with the redeemed and with the armies of heaven will sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Amen? Amen. Amen. So then with that, the question is, how should this hope shape the way we live now? And that is not a rhetorical question. What do you think? It certainly brings our priorities into right order. Yeah. What yeah. We invest our time in. You know, I mean, we can enjoy life and enjoy hobbies and all of it, but when those things get out of balance, then that's not good. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, so just a, a calibrating of our priorities, for sure. What else? Any other thoughts on how we should live in light of all this glorious truth? <clears throat> Well, um, we'll talk about it in this point. So that, that, that brings us to this point of that it should provide motivation for how we live now in, in a couple of different ways. One is the perspective that Peter gives us in 2 Peter 3. So in reflecting on the fact that heaven and earth are going to be destroyed, Peter says this in 2 Peter 3. 11 through 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of persons ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be kindled and dissolved and the elements will melt with fire. But according to his promises, we wait for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then Jesus, very explicitly in Matthew 6, says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. So when we consider the fact that the present creation is a temporary one and that our life in the new creation is going to last forever for all of eternity, then we should have a strong motivation for godly living 
for living in such a way as to store up treasures in heaven. Living in such a way that we are doing things that will pass the test of the fire, like Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians. So with all this, Pastor Sam Storms gives a beautiful summary of what the new heaven and the new earth will look like. And this is a very long quote, but hang in with me because I think it's, it's worth it. I'm going to try to not get tongue-tied when I read it. He says, when we get to the new heaven and the new earth, there will be nothing that is abrasive, irritating, agitating, or hurtful, nothing harmful, hateful, upsetting, or unkind, nothing sad, bad, or mad, nothing harsh, impatient, ungrateful, or unworthy, nothing weak or sick or broken or foolish, nothing deformed, degenerate, depraved, or disgusting, nothing polluted, pathetic, poor, or putrid, Nothing dark, dismal, dismaying, or degrading. Nothing blameworthy, blemished, blasphemous, or blighted. Nothing faulty, faithless, frail, or fading. Nothing grotesque or grievous, hideous or insidious. Nothing illicit or illegal, lascivious or lustful. Nothing marred or mutilated, misaligned or misinformed. Nothing nasty or naughty, offensive or odious. Nothing rancid or rude, soiled or spoiled. Nothing tawdry or tainted, tasteless or tempting, nothing vile or vicious, wasteful or wanton. Wherever you turn your eyes, you will see nothing but glory and grandeur and beauty and brightness and purity and perfection and splendor and satisfaction and sweetness and salvation and majesty and marvel and holiness and happiness. We will see only and all that is adorable and affectionate, beautiful and bright, brilliant and bountiful, delightful and delicious, delectable and dazzling, elegant and exciting, fascinating and fruitful, glorious and grand, gracious and good, happy and holy, healthy and whole, joyful and jubilant, lovely and luscious, majestic and marvelous, opulent and overwhelming, radiant and resplendent, splendid and sublime, sweet and savoring, tender and tasteful, euphoric and unified. Why will it be all these things? Because we will be looking at God. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? You kept thinking he's almost done. Okay, now he's almost done. And it just kept going. Yeah. So hopefully that gives you, that gives us just a glimpse, just a taste of what the new heaven and the new earth are going to be like for us. So lastly, um, as we conclude, we're going to talk a little bit about the millennium, okay? Something that everybody wants to know about, something that as with the other kind of issues in this class, we're not going to get deeply into it, but we do, I, I did think it was worth just giving a survey of the different views, just so that you're aware of how different good and godly people think about this particular issue related to the future. Okay? So what millennial views are you guys aware of? What views of the millennium? What's that? All that you're cheating, Susan. Well there is it's not fair. Yeah, which is what? Pan-millennialism. Right, that pan-millennialism. Yeah. Tell us what pan-millennialism It'll is, Frank. It's all pan out in the end. It's, all, it's just going to all pan out in the end. <laughs> yeah, which is, a, you know, that's, that's a view. Um, and probably is more people's view than not. There's probably more pan-millennialists, if they were honest, than there are of, that hold one of these particular views. Um, be, because it is a challenging issue. And uh, it, it could be one where people just want to kind of punt and say, it'll all pan out in the end. And I would say that's not necessarily a wrong approach to take. As, insofar as your pan-millennialism is a trust in the sovereignty and the wisdom and the goodness and the plan of God. And knowing that however it happens, it's going to happen exactly the way it should. And I think that's 
that should be what we take away from everything that we've talked about in this class that is a debated issue. Um, okay, so the discussion of the millennium, which millennium means a thousand years, if you didn't know that, it originates from the book of Revelation in the first part of chapter 20, okay, um, where it refers to a thousand year reign. And so the question is often asked from this passage, well, what are the thousand years and when will Christ return with respect to those thousand years? Okay? And as with the different eschatological views and systems, this really comes down to hermeneutics. It comes down to a, a difference in how people approach how you interpret this thousand years okay so the the three views that i've listed there are the three primary views but um as with everything else there are nuances within each of these views and there are you know you know people will split up premillennial views into several different views and so so there are nuanced views, but this is just a, a, to give you a sense, to give you an overview of how different Christians approach this issue of the millennium. Okay, So the first view we look at is post-millennialism. Post-millennialism. And uh, by the way, millennium and millenni on all these millennial views are misspelled. So there are actually two ends um, in millennium. So my spell check was not working. Uh, apparently, and uh, so, but uh, post-millennialism. So, this view says that through the binding of Satan, there will be a gradual increase in the growth of the church and the spread of the gospel where more and more people will become Christians. And the influence of more believers will change society in such a way that it will function as God originally intended, resulting in an age of peace and righteousness. In other words, the millennium, which, uh, which to them is not a literal 1,000 years. So that would be a figurative 1,000 years. Um, and then after that millennium, after that period of time, then Christ will come back. So he will come back post or after the millennium, which to them is not a literal thousand years. It's a figurative way of just talking about a period of time. Okay, so that's post-millennialism. Amillennialism. Amillennialists believe that the millennium is being fulfilled now, spiritually, between the first and second comings of Christ, who is ruling in his millennial kingdom now over his church and in the hearts of his people. And so according to this view, Satan is currently restrained in his ability to deceive the nations, but he is still active. And consequently, the world will continue to get worse until Jesus returns. And then this will mark the end of the millennium and the eternal state will be ushered in. And so, ah, millennial, means no millennium. They don't believe that, that that group is categorized as they don't believe in a literal thousand years. They believe that, again, millennium is being used figuratively to talk about a period of time that we are currently in between the first and second comings of Christ. So these two positions, ah, millennialism and post-millennialism, are actually similar with the exception of the fact that amillennialism believes that the world will get worse and worse until Christ returns, and postmillennialism believes that it will get better and better until Christ returns. Make sense? Any questions? Thoughts on that? Okay. So the, the one that's different from the other two is premillennialism, which 
premillennialists believe that the millennium is a future and earthly kingdom in which Christ will rule the nations. And they believe that this kingdom will be established immediately after Jesus physically returns to earth in glory and Satan will be thrown into the abyss and confined for a literal 1,000 years while the people of God will reign with Christ on the earth. And then following this 1,000-year reign, Satan will be released for a short time, but then will be sentenced to the lake of fire forever, at which time the eternal state will be ushered in, which will be the final destination and state for all believers. So that's what premillennialists believe. And their understanding of this is based on three aspects of biblical revelation. Okay, One is the promises of a coming reign of the Messiah over the nations in a restored earth after a time of tribulation. So they would say that the thousand years that's referred to in Revelation 20 would be consistent with uh, promises in the Old and New Testament about the Messiah ruling over the nations in a restored earth. They would also say it's consistent with a prophecy of an intermediate kingdom that seems to be distinct between the present age and the eternal state. And they would point to Isaiah 65 and Zechariah 8 for that. And then, of course, they would point to Revelation 20 where it talks about the thousand-year reign, and they would say, we take that at face value. Okay? Any questions on the different millennial views? So... Basically, post and amillennialist, they, they, they take that thousand years figuratively. Amillennialists think the world is getting worse and worse until Christ returns. Postmillennialists, who there are much fewer of, uh, believe that the world is getting better and better until Christ returns. And then premillennialists believe that there is actually going to be a literal 1,000-year reign coming in the future that will be in between the time of Christ's return, and the eternal state. So that hopefully sums it up. Question? So if we're talking about like the continuum, like the last two dispensationalism mm-hmm. and covenant theology, mm-hmm. where would each of these fall on that continuum? Yes. So <clears throat> amillennialism would be in the continuity, covenant theology side of the spectrum. Premillennialism would be on the discontinuity, dispensational side of the spectrum. And postmillennial would be more on the continuity uh, as well, covenant theology side. Although that is that view is way less prevalent today than probably it was a hundred years ago. Yeah. So so I mean people would look at you know, events in the world like the world wars and things like that and go, okay, maybe things aren't getting better. Um, and so maybe we need to adjust our view. Uh, so that, that's not a common view now. The most common views are premillennialism and amillennialism. And those would be the ones where amill is on the continuity, covenant theology side, premill, discontinuity, dispensationalism. Yes, and yes, right, and, and, and pre-mill as well. I mean, there's, there are pre-mill, pre-millennialists who don't believe in a literal thousand-year reign now. Um, so I don't know exactly how that works, but I just know there's many nuanced views in all of this. But that's, that's the, the broad overview. Any other thoughts or questions before we conclude? Okay, well, I want to leave you with this. I want to leave you with another quote. It's not as long as the Storms quote. This is from John Newton. Have you ever heard of John Newton before, Frank? Yeah, yeah he did some good work. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so in just kind of, I think this summarizes everything that we've talked about in eschatology well and very poetically. He says, we are sure that the Lord reigns. The storm is guided by the hands which were nailed to the cross. He loves his own, and he will take care of them. 
Blessed be God for the prospect of a land of peace where sin and every sorrow will be excluded. There we shall have a day without cloud and without night. The sun shall go down no more. The voice of war shall be heard no more. The inhabitants shall feel no more pain, shall weep no more, shall go out no more. Then no more unsanctified and therefore no more unsatisfied desires. Oh, what a state of love, life, and joy when we see Jesus as he is. And by beholding him, we are changed into his image and made like him. This day shall come. This day will come. This day approaches nearer every hour. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah so let's live in light of that hope this week. Okay, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Lord, we rejoice uh, just to think about the hope that we have in what our future destiny is because of what you've done for us in Christ. Lord, we are so grateful that you have provided a way for us to have forgiveness of sins, for us to have reconciliation with you and to have eternal life dwelling with you, worshiping you, free from pain, free from sin forever. Uh, Lord, what a glorious truth, what a glorious hope. I pray that you would just uh, fill our hearts with that hope today, um, that we would carry that hope uh, into our corporate gathering this morning and into our week this week, uh, and that we would just live in light of it, that we would live obediently, expectantly, joyfully, gratefully uh, in light of everything that you have done for us in Christ and everything that is still yet to come. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.